0: This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. We have been reading A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction 30 years ago. It was later turned into a major motion picture, and the Des Moines Metro Opera will perform the world premiere of A Thousand Acres, the opera, on July 9th in Indianola. The novel is a modern retelling of Shakespeare's King Lear. The kingdom in question is a thousand-acre Iowa farm. The story begins in the 1970s and is told from the perspective of Ginny, the oldest of the three adult daughters of Larry Cook, a lifelong farmer who decides it's time to pass the farm along to the next generation. Ginny and her sister Rose are ready, along with their husbands, to take over the farm. Caroline, the youngest, expresses doubts about the plan and sparks a family rift with far-reaching consequences. The tragedy unfolds as terrible secrets are kept or revealed, and Larry loses his grip on reality. In addition to the echoes of Shakespeare, the novel is a beautifully crafted portrayal of Iowa, the land, the agriculture, the culture, and the challenges. When she wrote it, Jane Smiley was a professor at Iowa State University. She is also a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and has written many other books. Her most recent is The Delightful Perestroika in Paris. And I will introduce our expert readers in a few minutes, but Jane Smiley herself is with me now. Hello, Jane.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Great, thank you so much for being here, and I wonder if you would start us off by just reading a short excerpt from the book.
1: Yes, this is from the end of chapter one. i It's just a couple of paragraphs, and this is one of this is one of uh, Ginny's memories. It was nineteen fifty one and I was eight when I saw the farm and the future in this way. That was the year my father bought his first car, a Buick sedan with prickly gray velvet seats, so rounded and slick that it was easy to slide off the back seat into the footwell when we went over a stiff bump or around a sharp corner. That was also the year my sister Caroline was born, which was undoubtedly the reason my father bought the car. The Erickson children and the Clark children continued to ride in the back of the farm pickup, but the Cook children kicked their toes against a front seat and stared out the back windows, nicely protected from the dust. The car was the exact measure of 640 acres compared to 300 or 500. In spite of the price of gasoline, we took a lot of rides that year, something farmers rarely do and my father never again did after Caroline was born. For me, it was a pleasure, like a secret hoard of coins. Rose, whom I adored, sitting against me in the hot, musty, velvet luxury of the car's interior. The click of the gravel on its undercarriage. The sensation of the car swimming in the rutted road. The farms passing every minute reduced from vastness to insignificance by our speed, the unaccustomed sense of leisure, most important, though, the reassuring note of my father's and mother's voices commenting on what they saw. He, on the progress of the yearly work and the condition of the animals in the pastures, she, on the look and size of the house and garden, the colors of the buildings, their tones of voice were unhurried and self-confident, complacent with the knowledge that the work at our place was farther along, the buildings at our place more imposing and better cared for. When I think of them now, I think how they had probably seen nearly as little of the world as I had by that time. But when I listened to their duet then, I nestled into the certainty of the way through the repeated comparisons, our farm and our lives seemed secure and good.
0: That is Jane Smiley reading just a short excerpt from her Pulitzer Prize winning novel, A Thousand Acres. And take us back in time, Jane, what was the inspiration for taking much of the plot of King Lear and and putting it on a farm in Iowa?
1: Well, there were a couple of inspirations. Um one was that when I was in college and graduate school at, at the University of Iowa, one of the things I studied a lot was old Norse literature. And I had this feeling that I wanted to write a saga. And so I wrote The Greenlanders, which came out in 1988. But I also had been exposed while I was growing up to Lots of Shakespeare. and one and we read King Lear, you know, once in once in high school, I think twice in college and twice in graduate school. And I always found it quite annoying that he got to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and he had he always was expressing his feelings, and the the girls or the women in the play were in the background. But the other thing was that since we read so much Shakespeare, I thought, well, I really want to write in a lot of different forms. So my first idea was to write a saga form, which was The Greenlanders. And then I thought, okay, I want to write a tragedy. I want to write a comedy. I want to write a romance. And so I thought, okay, I will write King Lear from the women's point of view, and that'll be the tragedy. And then we were, um, we lived in Ames, and we were driving down Highway 30, probably, I think it was late March, around the time that the Greenlanders had gone to the publisher. And I was looking around at the landscape, and I thought, oh, this is where I should set that King Lear novel, because it was simultaneously isolated and, Unusual because of how flat it was. And when I read more about the history of that part of, of northern Iowa and about the um, drainage wells and about the immigrants who drain the fields, I thought, well, this is even more interesting than I thought. So that's when I decided to set it in that area.
0: Well, and you were also living in Iowa during a time immediately following one of the great tragedies in our history, the farm crisis. Was that part of the inspiration?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was just a coincidental event, because I'd been planning to maybe redo King Lear for a long time. But because I lived in Iowa, and because I taught at Iowa State, I did have a sense of what a crisis it was. And I thought that that would be a good time to set it, you know, rather than say back in the fifties or something like that.
0: Your portrayal of farm life in Iowa, your description of the land of, uh, you mentioned how it was drained. Of course, there are drainage tiles running under almost all of the farm fields in, in the state of Iowa to make the land dry enough to farm. Um, what kind of research? I mean, you are so detailed. There are so many layers to these descriptions. What kind of research did you do?
1: Well, I taught at Iowa State, so there were a lot of people I could talk to. And and once the agricultural crisis came, then there was a lot of information about uh, farming and the history of farming in in other sources, too. So the the real question in the research was, in my mind, not so much how do I learn about farming, because that was something I just sort of picked up. I mean, at one point, when I first moved to Iowa City, um, the only house that my husband and I could afford was down in uh, Wellman, just outside of Wellman. It was 30 miles from Iowa City. And it was at the same time that the book, Barry Commoner's book, The Closing Circle, came out. And they, and that was a book that talked a lot about pesticides. And I used to walk around Wellman, and uh, there's a beautiful sort of uh, wild area not far from where my house was. And I used to contemplate those issues. And so they kind of stuck in my mind for, while I was at Iowa State. And, and then before that, when I was in Iowa City, I hadn't grown up on a farm. I just thought it was fascinating. And I also liked or was interested in the various different landscapes. I mean, Iowa doesn't get much uh, credit for having different landscapes, but it really does. And um, they mean that the farmers have to adjust whatever it is they're doing so that the landscape um, can be used in a different way. So the interesting thing about that northern, that north central area was that once they drained the wells, the the topsoil was unbelievably fertile and thick. So um, they, it was like this incredible luxury to have this kind of fertility and have this kind of topsoil, so in some sense, the land that the farmers had there was um, a treasure uh, that wasn't that no one else, maybe in the whole country, had, and that was interesting to me too. Yeah,
0: well, and we love we love our exceptionalism. I grew up hearing that it, there was nowhere else in the world <laughs> with soil like that. Um, We only have a moment left before we go to break, but, you know, this the Shakespearean tragedy that that plays out through this, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that that was the framework. You bring this very real Iowa into the framework, but a lot of bad things happen to these farmers, these characters that you've crafted Mm -hmm. And, and so I can imagine a lot of people in Iowa at the time reading this book thinking, well, this is not a very flattering <laughs> portrayal. <laughs> While you won the Pulitzer Prize, did you get a lot of flack in Iowa? Was there pushback?
1: Uh, not that I knew of. I didn't have a sense that it was terribly offensive. You know, I tried to be as realistic as possible and people in Iowa knew about the various crises that were taking place including the pesticide crisis including the farm crisis they knew that the farming was changing and maybe not to their own advantage so no i didn't get a whole lot of uh, negative feedback
0: We are going to take a short break. I'm talking with Jane Smiley, the author of A Thousand Acres, which won the Pulitzer Prize 30 years ago. It is also our selection for the Talk of Iowa Book Club. We'll introduce our expert readers in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1992. It is a modern retelling of King Lear on an Iowa farm in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Jane Smiley is here with us. And now it is time to introduce our two expert readers. Christine McIntyre has directed more than 100 operas across the United States, and she is the director of A Thousand Acres, the opera, which the Des Moines Metro Opera will premiere on July 9th. She'll also be part of Creators in Conversation, a panel discussion with Jane Smiley and the composer and librettist for the opera at 1.30 on July 9th at Sheslow Auditorium on the Drake University campus. And she is with me now. Hello, Christine. Hello. How are you? (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you for being here. And this opera was really your idea. So tell me a little bit about your relationship with this book and what
3: inspired you to to help create an opera out of it. So I first read the book in 1994. I was actually studying abroad when it was published. And, and when I got back, a good friend of mine said, you have to read this because I have a background in English literature and theater and Shakespeare was, you know, kind of my jam. And I was immediately taken with it. So then fast forward a couple of decades and Michael Eagle, who's the general director of Des Moines Metro Opera, was starting to talk about commissioning an opera to celebrate the company's 50th anniversary. And he said to me one day in the car, got any ideas? And I said, you know, there's this book set in Iowa and I think you might think of it. (laughs) and I wasn't the only person to suggest it but I was one of the early ones and I I was the one who pushed it the hardest because I just thought it seemed like well first of all a kind of obvious choice and a great fit for what I wanted to see us do on the opera stage
0: well take me back to 1994 when you were
3: devouring this novel (laughs) what really connected with you I have this incredibly strong memory of sitting on my couch in this little rented apartment we had in San Francisco and literally, you know, just turning pages and thinking, what's going to happen next? And I was so taken with the craft of it. Lear is a play I knew really, really well and had studied both in college and graduate school and... And I was just so amazed at this, you know, feminist retelling. And the second I finished it, I handed it to my husband and said, you got to read this. And he also is uh, an English literature uh, major. He had studied at Oxford and he devoured it as well. He's a great fan of American literature. And we both just knew that we had read something that was really important.
0: Um, I want to bring our other expert reader into the conversation now. Mary Swander is here, a poet, an author, playwright, professor emerita, founder of Ag Arts and host of the podcast Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. She is also a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. She and Jane were there at the same time. And her play, Map of My Kingdom, about farmland transition, has been performed around the country and deals with many of the themes of A Thousand Acres and King Lear, too. Hello, Mary. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And take us back, Mary. What do you remember from the first time you read A Thousand Acres?
2: Well, a colleague of ours at Iowa State came into my office one day and he said, here, I want to pass on Jane's new book. It's really, really good. And I sat down and was totally caught up into it. I read it, I think, over two days. and. I was blown away by the way it did parallel King Lear and then all the characters that were representing our landscape and the issue of farmland transition, which I knew very well.
0: Well, I read it for the first time in the 1990s, too. And I was I was a college student when I read it. And um, I think I was so transfixed by the plot and, and, and all of the, I mean, there are a lot of big things (laughs) that happen in the novel. (laughs) Um, So when I came back to it this time, it was such a different experience for me because I really got to, explore the nuance. I mean, I knew what was coming. So I wasn't having the same kind of emotional journey that I had the first time I read it. But I mean, as I was talking about just a few minutes ago, the incredible details, the layering of, you know, the land and the farming and the way people talk. I mean, these are the neighbors that I grew up with. Hopefully their lives were not quite as hard. Um, But Mary, what was your experience going back to it? I mean, almost 30 years later?
2: It was a similar experience. What I uh, keyed into this time was the foreshadowing. You know, there for example, there's a lot of food in this, <laughs> in this book, and the food is right out of the heartland. And when Ginny, the character Ginny, starts cooking sausages making sausages for various people in the family and serving them you know I know what happens with the sausages at the end of the book and I'm like no 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 she's making you sausages don't eat those okay good 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 you didn't eat them all right very good you know so I was having a little dialogue with myself with the characters in the
0: in the book but there's a there were moments where I I almost felt like uh, Jane was a little bit clairvoyant because it feels like so many of these topics are are so much more talked about and and thought about now no the book is really
2: really uh, foresees the future when I was reading the book I remember thinking, okay, now what are these hog confinement things that they're putting up there? You know, I I I, I vaguely knew about them, but I was like, okay, when well now the manure pit, now you know, we're surrounded by kfos and this is this is it. This is our farming um life now and future. And at the same time, you know, I could see that there were environmental problems with those things. And for example, now we're really dealing with uh, polluted water, uh, lakes and streams. It's a huge problem. And so all of the bits and pieces and the seeds of that are in the book. She even goes into the David and Goliath story of uh, conventional farming, which is, you know, get bigger or get out and the organic um, farming, or what we now call regenerative agriculture, uh, which is usually smaller farms that use uh, fewer or no chemicals. Right, and was really, really far out (laughs) in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you can see for the reaction of the the characters, you know, this is, is, uh, you know, what are we talking about here? No till, what a crazy thing is that, you know? And now that's very commonplace.
0: So, Mary, you, surprise, surprise, agreed with the Pulitzer committee that this was really a masterpiece. But it it wasn't a a likely Pulitzer winner in a lot of ways, was it? No, as I
2: remember it, Jane's agent turned down the book at first and said, no, 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 I can never sell a book about farming in New York City. No, we'll have no readers. I
1: never forget to remind her of that. Every time someone mentions, every time we're together and someone mentions a, a thousand acres, I always remind her that she said, "A farm." You want to write a book about a farm? <laughs> I mean, the more I have to say that, the more I researched it, the more I um, got fascinated by it, uh, by the land but also by the psychology of the characters. Um, and I had grown up knowing that, that you know, sisters didn't always get along. Yeah. Um, and I knew, I knew that uh, Goneril or Ginny was going to be my main character because I figured that the oldest sister is usually the one who is the most thoughtful, and observant, um, and also the most torn between the family dynamics, Um, you know, what's good, what's bad. My experience of sister number two in both my my mother's family and in my own family was that sister number two is usually more opinionated than number (laughs) one. And I also knew that there was a reason that Cordelia behaved the way she did. So I figured that there was one of the reasons was that her, her father had treated her like the favorite. And I also remember that when I was young, it yeah, you knew who the favorite was. And it wasn't necessarily you. And after I became a parent, I realized you weren't allowed to show that there was a favorite. But when we were growing up, um, you did know who the favorite was. So I thought that was a good dynamic, too. Um, But one thing I wanted to talk about that I thought was really interesting when I was doing the research was going back through the various versions of the play King Lear, um, Shakespeare found a version, but there were previous versions that sort of went back to um, mythology, and there was some sense in the mythology parts, the pre- pre- previous to the one that Shakespeare found, that uh, King Lear had misbehaved. And um, that he and so there was some justification in my mind for giving him the um, the bad behavior that is in the book that I'm not going to talk about for those who haven't um, read the book.
0: Yeah, although I I recommend reading it twice. Read read it once (laughs) to find out about what happened and then read it again. Read it again because the the plot will take over your mind. And uh, so when I was talking to Mary a couple of days ago, she was talking about you, Jane, walking around saying, how am I going to – and people know – spoil a little bit. <laughs> People know that there are things that happen in King Lear. You know, she, you, she said you were walking around saying, how am I going to blind him? How am I going to blind him? <laughs> yeah. So, so <laughs> tell me a little bit about the obsession, perhaps, that took hold of you as you were trying to, to put all of those King Lear plot points
1: into the novel. Well, it had there, it was a game in some sense. I really wanted to stick as closely to the plot of King Lear as I could. Um, and I realized that in the modern world, a lot of what happens in King Lear is not realistic. But in the Scandinavian world what that I was reading, uh, the the uh, Icelandic sagas, it was totally realistic. So there was a kind of Nordic quality to King Lear. that's not the same as, say, Romeo and Juliet. And that drew me in and fascinated me too. But I I realized that I had to adhere to King Lear as best I could, but I also had to make, allow the reader to believe it it couldn't be, um, there couldn't be a war in Northern Iowa. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) It also, and that reminds me that my, the more I learned about the nature of agriculture and how it worked, then the more ideas that I got about how I could substitute a more modern and realistic thing for something that would be happening in the Middle Ages, you know?
0: Yeah, well, and and by just talking about, you know, all of the the dangers of farm work and the mm-hmm. people who are injured on farms, I mean, we know that's a very real thing every year in Iowa, plus the the financial tightrope. There's, yeah. there's a lot of drama on a farm. And Mary, I, I want to uh, ask you, because of course, the thing that drives this story is the transition of the farmland. Larry Cook decides that he is going to divide up his kingdom among his children. and. The transition of farmland in iowa is incredibly fraught i mean and and every family farm has to go through this and that's what inspired your map of my kingdom right that's correct when i was first commissioned to write this play
2: teresa ofheim called me in to the practical farmers of iowa office and proposed it and i I just turned her down i said oh no i cannot go there i've gone through four generations of my own family with this issue and it always blows up and i can't do it emotionally just can't do it don't have time to process all this and walked out and about a year later (laughs) she enticed me back and she's like no no i think you can do this and um so i actually thought, all right, this is such a problematic issue. It probably would be good to have, you know, a play that would open up discussion. So I interviewed scores of people, other farmers, I did, you know, book research. I did research on what other states were doing on it and other agricultural um, organizations. <laughs> and I, I found out that there are functional families out there.
3: I had it in my
2: I had it in my head that handled this really well. I had it in my head that you know the more of the siblings offspring, the bigger the problem. But I ran across a couple families that said, oh no, we got this all worked out. And I'm like, okay, how many offspring in your family thinking one, you know? And they said, oh no, there are nine of us. They're nine of us. And we all agreed we're all on the same page. I thought, wow, what do you know? But um, Many functional families start on this as soon as they're married and they're on the farm and they get their estate set up and then every five years or so, every few years, they revisit it and revise it. And so this is something that becomes organic and it grows. But the dysfunctional families are kind of like King Lear. "Ah, Give me that map. Let me just divide it all up. There you go, girls. It's all yours. And um, yeah and you can see what happens.
0: Yeah. So Jane took King Lear and and put it over this, you know, experience that so many Iowa farm families had. And what you're saying, Mary, is that she didn't exaggerate? Uh, uh, oh, no. Oh, no.
2: Not a bit. Actually, Teresa, <laughs> no I'm thought I was exaggerating on my first submission of the script. She thought it was way exaggerating the problems and the situations and unbeknownst to me she had a meeting where she called in a bunch of farmers to do a reading of the play and then she said now mary is really going overboard on this isn't she and you know in their farmer way they sat there and they're like nope nope mary's on target and the play went forward.
0: <laughs> well, and, and Christine, coming into this world, do you feel kind of like you, you were grabbing a live wire? I mean, the, this is the backbone of Iowa.
3: Yeah, a little bit. I am not from Iowa, and but I spend my summers here, and so I see little bits of it. Um, but yeah, you know, you read a a plot like this, and you think that, okay, that's pretty far out there. And then you begin to talk to people. And there's so many people I've encountered. And we even have people in the production that are like, Oh, no, that's my family. We have one, uh, one person in the cast who said, his family is dealing exactly with this, not exactly in this way. But Mary is exactly right that it is, it seems to be the pervasive issue. Oh,
0: wow. Well, we're, we're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and we are talking about A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley. With me, Mary Swander, poet, author, playwright, professor emerita, founder of Egg Arts, and host of the podcast Egg Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. Also with me, Christine McIntyre, who has directed more than 100 operas and is directing the world premiere of A Thousand Acres at the Des Moines Metro Opera on July 9th. And of course, Jane Smiley herself is here as well. And we'll be back in a moment. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
3: NPR.
0: This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been reading A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1992. It is a modern retelling of King Lear on an Iowa farm in the late 1970s and early 1980s. There is a new opera version of A Thousand Acres premiering this summer. Des Moines Metro Opera will premiere it on July 9th. And with me is Jane Smiley. Also here, Christine McIntyre, who is the director of A Thousand Acres, the opera. I also want to mention that she and Jane and also the composer and librettist for the opera will be part of the Creators in Conversation. It's a panel discussion at Sheslow Auditorium on the Drake University campus on July 9th at 1.30 p.m. Mary Swander is also here, poet, author, playwright, founder of Egg Arts, host of the podcast Egg Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. And the next thing I want to talk about in the novel is water. And, and Jane already mentioned earlier, right about how the land was tiled and drained to make it farmable. And then this farm that we're focusing on is in really northwestern Iowa and the the prairie pothole region. So, So we know how essential that drainage is there, although there are tiles under pretty much every farm across the state of Iowa. But water is a theme that just works its way through the novel in so many different ways. Um, and Christine, I know that 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 theme is something that that really drew you in and is a big part of the opera, too, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, you were t- asking about impressions on a second or a later reading, right of the book, And I think it's one of the things that stood out to me in one of the the many times that I've now read the book. Um, is the way that Jane weaves the water through and all the different kinds of water, the water that is beneath, the sea beneath our feet, as she calls it. Um, Obviously, water from above, storms here in Iowa are the real deal. Um, And always the threat of stormy weather and thunderstorms. And of course, in King Lear, there is a large storm as there is in A 1000 acres. Um, And I love the idea of water as a metaphor for the mutability of things, the changeability of things, uh, which is so much a part of, of Ginny's sense of what is going on around her that it's all shifting. Uh, Jane talks in the novel about the idea of false bottoms with the tiling and the the water beneath it. And certainly Jenny has that idea that um, nothing is as it seemed to be, right? And everything feels like it could fall apart at any minute. And we've actually tried to incorporate a little bit of this idea of the the tiling and the layers of things into the scenic design for a 1,000 acres. I I don't know that anybody that doesn't understand the novel would um, exactly know what that is, but I think all the Iowans who see it will know exactly what it is we're, we're pointing out. And it just feels so important that there are these uh, visual layers that represent that aspect of the storytelling.
0: Well, and Jane, reading the novel again this time, um, I was struck by, I mean, in many ways, you were really ahead of your time. It's not that we didn't know that water pollution and water contamination was a problem in in Iowa in the 1990s, but our awareness of the problem has grown exponentially. And that's, you know, just one of the main challenges facing Iowa right now. Tell me a little bit about about what you wanted to communicate with that.
1: Well, when I was doing, as I said, when I lived in Wellman in 1981, I did read The Closing Circle by Barry Commoner, which was about Pesticides. And we had a well outside of our little house, and I would stare into the well because that's where we got our drinking water, and think, "Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh." So, that's something I became conscious of almost as soon as I moved to Iowa. Um, and then when I started researching this particular area, there I do remember reading that there had been a spike of various ailments. Um, associated with pesticides in that area. So that that wasn't why I chose that area, but it I thought it was very important to especially to these characters um, because of what might happen to them from drinking the, from drinking that water for such a long time. And then as with all everything that I write, it sort of opens up and then i start think looking about looking at this looking at that looking at this other thing and thinking okay that's important that's important i have to weave all that in so it beca- began about king lear but it became a kind of exploration of a, an ecosystem that also had relationships to other ecosystems, and to the world that we live in. You know, I, I think all of us grew up thinking, oh, wow, this is an interesting world that we live in, but not realizing, A, that it was being poisoned, B, that um, there was going to be climate change. And as I learned about those things, I wanted to pay attention to them and put them into my books because n- novels are, are meant to be political. And so I wanted them to express what things I had observed, um, in Iowa and in Greenland for that matter, and, and other places that I had been, uh, that I'd lived in.
0: I also wonder if, uh, I, I can imagine, I guess, for a lot of Iowans, you know, we have this urban-rural divide. And I, my life kind of spans both. I grew up in a rural area, but we were not farmers. And, and so I, I can see both sides of it really clearly. And so many urban Iowans really don't understand how agriculture works and how the things that they're worried about have come to be. I mean, Mary, I'm sure you encounter that a lot. I do, and that's one of the reasons I
2: started the Ag Arts Residencies, where I put artists on farms. Artists are usually one, two, three generations removed from the farm, and farmers uh, think artists are a little out there. And so they come together, and the artists learn the farmers' issues and then reflect those issues in their work and it's working like i've it's really an educational project as well as one that gives the artists time you know to do a project so i have these artists at the end of their projects coming and saying i never knew that there are all these pipes running underneath the ground and i'm like pipes pipes and they're talking about tiling this is their first time that they've you know understood the concept or even been aware of the concept. And Jane brings that out so beautifully in her book about how we had to drain
0: a huge portion of land to convert it into farmland. It's hard to imagine, you know, people coming to a novel and, and suddenly discovering the ground beneath their feet. But I'm sure that a lot of people did. And uh, before we run out of time, I do want to talk a little bit about the patriarchy, which we've all lived within our entire lives. Um, and, and Jane, I know that that was a big inspiration for you. I mean, that that's what you were saying is you wanted to tell King Lear from the perspective of the oldest daughter from Ginny in this case, mm-hmm. who tells the story. And we do have this, it's just an incredible look at gender roles in Iowa history, in, in Iowa culture on the farm. And, and it's, I spent a long, lot of time thinking about how Frustrated, uh, so many women must have been for so long to have their voices unheard and and really to not have the opportunities to pursue lives beyond the farm and beyond the kitchen and the kitchen garden.
1: Well, it wasn't an outlier. Iowa wasn't an outlier on that uh, that's that been the norm for most women um for a really, really long time, but I just spent so many years being, wanting to know what was going on in Goneril's head and wanting to know what's going on in Reagan's head. Because I grew up in a very kindly family and I thought, well, why could they be so mean? You know, what's going on that makes them so, so mean? And Lear himself doesn't give you any insight into that. He just babbles on and on about his own, you know, feelings. And he doesn't Pay any attention to the girls except how they treat him, and that put me on their side. So I knew that there were plenty of women's issues that could be explored um, in this book, and um, I don't know. I didn't think Iowa was unique in that. Uh, I just thought it was same everywhere, you know.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I think about the farm crisis and how, I mean, that transformed agriculture and life in the state in so many ways. But it also transformed women's lives because to successfully farm in modern times pretty much means that somebody has to work in town. And most of the time that is uh, women in Iowa. So, I mean, it was this moment that really exploded things. And of course, the 1970s were a a time of of transition in so many ways for women. But uh, I hadn't hadn't specifically thought about the farm crisis as being such a big part of the unwilling part of the women's movement in some ways. Mary, I know that, that you've thought a little bit about that.
2: Yes, during the farm crisis, I began to notice that my neighbors were taking off farm jobs. And, you know, often it was the woman, sometimes it was the man, sometimes it was both of them. And they would both work all day in construction or as clerks or nurses' aides, all sorts of things, and then farm under lights at night. And then another reason farmers had to get off farm jobs at that time as they were really, really getting squeezed with medical bills. Farming is the number one most dangerous job ever. The number two is dynamiter. And so farmers have all sorts of injuries and accidents and we, you know, none of them had any health insurance. And so an off farm job would provide that in addition to
0: financial help. Yeah. Well, and and Christine, I know that the relationship between Ginny and Rose... Is, is also one of the things that, that maybe it didn't draw you to that novel in the first place, but it's such a, a major part of the opera that the fact that that this central relationship in this story is between two women and they're not just talking about boys.
3: No, exactly. I mean, we've got wonderful scenes in the opera that pass the Bechdel test, as we call it, this <laughs> idea that you can have women on the stage talking about something other than their their, their husbands or their lovers. And it's, it's a great delight to us. And I keep saying that, yeah, the most important relationship is, is Ginny and Rose together. And it's just so rare. It's rare in any form of performing arts and especially in the opera world that we get a chance to explore that and to give voice to, to their side of things. And it's interesting thinking about women's work, right? That thing we used to say about the women's work in the kitchen or whatever. And we've tried to put some of that texture into the, the staging of the piece so that both Ginny and Rose always have their hands busy because women always did, right? There's never a moments piece. From whatever the labor is, whether it's cooking breakfast for dad from twenty years, or or folding the laundry late at night, there's there's always something to be done. Right.
1: I I should add that when I go back to the novel, the part that I enjoy, that Mister Shakespeare didn't include, is um is of Ginny reflecting on herself, on the events, on how they changed her on. How, how they changed her view of things. And I think that was the biggest pleasure in writing the novel for me, was giving Ginny the opportunity to look back and express what she thought about what had happened.
0: And, and we get to see her grow and evolve.
1: Yes, well, when I was reading
2: it, I noticed all that reflection and kept thinking, huh, how does she how is she able to do all of this and then at the end of the book I find out that she got a degree in psychology so that cleared it all up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we only have a couple of minutes left and uh, I I want each of you to to just give me a, some brief thoughts about the legacy of this novel because again it's been such a joy to come back to it 30 years later and and to experience it on a different level in many ways, you know, because of the changes in our culture, but also personally, I've lived a lot in the last 30 years, so I have a lot deeper empathy for all of, almost all of the characters, not every single one, but almost all of the characters. And, and Jane, I mean, it must be quite an experience for you to look back on this novel. You've written so many books since. Um, what do you feel is the legacy of this work?
1: Maybe um, introspection, the idea that you can take the things that happen to you and think about them and learn about learn from them and come to kind of not exactly acceptance but understanding about them um i think Ginny is feels more empathic toward her family in the last section um so that was a pleasure for me but I I also think just depicting their particular landscape was a big pleasure for me.
0: Mary, what are your thoughts on the legacy of this work?
1: The landscape is very
2: important in here. And Jane has these passages about the landscape, like in chapter 18, that are absolutely poetic, where she talks about the geology of the landscape itself, how the Soil was formed, all the dead animals that were in here, all the weather that um, helped shape the landscape. And then I think about the title, The Thousand Acres. At the time the book came out, that was a huge, huge farm. That meant that, you know, some farmers basically bought out five or six other farms and formed them into one. Now that's a relatively small farm. We're talking... uh, now about farms that are 4,000 acres to 10,000 acres as being a big farm. So our sense of scale has changed.
0: And Christine, you are introducing a lot of people to this work, I'm sure, through the opera, uh, and you're making it new in some ways. So what are your thoughts about its legacy?
3: Well, it's not hard to make it new. I have to say, it's hard to think of the book as 30 years old. And one of the great pleasures in rereading it is how modern it feels. And this, um, what Jane was saying about Ginny and the notion of introspection and also the idea of narratives of self, which is something that we investigate a lot now, both in literature and in the theater. And and a thing I love is the idea that you can let us into a woman's world and her journey to self-discovery in a way, in such a gentle way, but in in such an important and and memorable way.
0: Well, we are out of time. Thank you all so much for being here today. Christine McIntyre is the director of A Thousand Acres, the opera which the Des Moines Metro Opera will premiere on July 9th. Mary Swander is a poet, author, playwright, podcaster and founder of Ag Arts. And Jane Smiley is Pulitzer Prize winning author of A Thousand Acres. Thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing copies of the book to our readers. This episode was produced by me and Caitlin Troutman. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.